0: I wonder how you are at waiting. Are you calm and serene? Are you frantic and impatient? Sometimes waiting is a struggle, isn't it? As children, my brother and I were very impatient. Life was lived at 100 miles an hour, and we hated waiting for anything. One example of this was when I used to meet my granddad from work and get the bus home. Standing at the bus stop, we really were trouble. Soon we'd be pushing and shoving, kicking litter into the road, wreaking general havoc. Eventually, my granddad came up with a clever strategy. He told us to both face the opposite direction from which the bus was coming. We had to close our eyes and we had to count, slowly, to 27. How he landed on the number 27, I will never know. But I kid you not, it worked. You would not believe how many times the bus turned up just as we got to that magic number. But of course, sometimes that technique did not work and the bus still did not arrive. And then he would tell us that it must be the case that the driver knew someone who urgently needed to be on that bus and if he turned up any earlier, they would have missed it. Of course, as children, that didn't wash (laughs) at all. We were bored waiting and that's all we cared about. But as I think back now, my granddad's line was rather clever. He was trying to stop us being selfish, trying to get us to start thinking of others. In this passage of 2 Peter 3, we come across a very similar argument from God, used in a time of waiting. I wonder if I'm any less selfish now in order to be able to take it in. The situation that Peter is writing to is one where the church is suffering great persecution. Nero has just begun his reign of terror over the Roman Empire and he is seeking to destroy the church. Peter himself will be martyred under Nero's orders in AD 68. So this letter, written just a few short years before that, is Peter trying to help and encourage the beleaguered Christians. It's actually Peter's second letter on this theme. In the first, he tried to instruct the church on how to deal with intense persecution. Yet here in the second, he moves on a little bit, and he's trying to help them stand up against the attacks that are coming from within the church, as well as without it. You see, it appears that false teachers have come up in the church. And they have begun a new strand of teaching. They are teaching the Christians that from now on they can hold their beliefs in private. Without letting anyone else know. Why? Well, if the church stays quiet and acts in all the same ways that the pagans outside are doing they would go unnoticed and the persecution would stop. These teachers were saying that you can experience the forgiveness of Jesus without having to follow any of the requirements for holy behaviour day by day. And it appears from what Peter writes that they back up this position, these false teachers, by denying the second coming of Jesus. Think about it. If Christ is not really coming back, they don't really need to proclaim him as Lord. They need not upset Nero anymore. They can just go along with the crowd and get off scot free. Secondly, if Jesus is not coming back, then there's no place for judgment in the future. Therefore, we can just act like everybody else, mingling in with the crowds. Can you see, in a climate where you're being persecuted for your faith, a moral slide is the simplest way to make life easy. And can you see, denying the return of Jesus as Lord and King and Judge is very convenient. Because if we don't think he's coming back, We can just do what we like. It was and is a very deceptive argument, especially when the church is really struggling and there seems to be no sign of Christ's return anytime soon. And as the people increasingly got tired of waiting, it was an argument that was beginning to suck many people in. And Peter knows if this trend continued the results would be disastrous. Christians would stop living as salt and life, they would stop engaging in mission and slowly but surely the church would die out. So Peter writes this letter to Peter urgently trying to combat this false teaching. If you flick back through, in chapter 1, he urges the believers to keep on living holy lives. In chapter 2, he slams the false teachers. And then here, in chapter 3, he corrects their heresy. He gives a full account of what is going on with the return of Jesus Peter believes that the only charge he has to correct the believer's behaviour and save the church is to correct what they believe. Because what we believe dictates everything else. So let's see how Peter constructs his argument First of all, in verses 1 to 7, he begins by taking on the one, number one lie of the false teachers. And he does this by calling on the church to remember God's word. To remember God's word. Both in the Old Testament prophets and in the teaching of Jesus himself came the promise that one day God would come to earth. Christ would decisively intervene in the world. He will judge all wickedness, he will banish all sin, and he will bring God's kingdom fully to bear as he does so. On that day, eternity will begin, heaven and earth will join together, and God's people will live face to face with their Lord in peace forevermore. But the false teachers were denying this. This was what their fathers had believed, and they died waiting. Died before that hope had arrived. So now these teachers are proclaiming that God doesn't even have the ability to do this. He doesn't have the ability to intervene in world affairs. If there is a God, he's out there in the ether somewhere, disconnected to what's really going on. And therefore, if you read verse 4, you will see that they're stating that nature will just continue on as it is, regardless. God break in and judge the world? Rubbish, they say. This is the major error that Peter must challenge. This is the root of the problem. And so straight away he calls it out for what it is. It's a lie. And Peter points out the sheer fallacy of that teaching. These teachers were not just badly educated, they were choosing to ignore God's word. To ignore it, to push their own agenda. Because God certainly could break into the world. He certainly can act to judge all human sin and to use nature to do it. Why? Because he's done it before. Come on. You remember the story of Noah, don't you? In Noah's time, because of the terrible sin on the earth, God sent a devastating flood and only Noah's righteous family survived it. In that moment, God decisively judged the sin on earth and brought it to an end. He destroyed the ungodly who had denied him and were damaging his world and he rescued the faithful. What Peter is saying in his verse, verses very loudly is, God's already done this. He's done it once before. So he can definitely do it again. In fact, he has promised to do it. He will do it. Because God never breaks a promise. If you remember God's word you will see that this teaching is false and selfish. Do not listen to it. It is dangerous. And to reiterate this, in verses 7 and 10 and 12 to 13, Paul moves on to tell his readers again what is ahead of them. Just like in the time of Noah, God one day is going to do something decisive. One day, unexpected and sudden, as a thief in the night, the Lord Jesus will return. And it will be unmistakable. Because it's going to shake the whole of the cosmos to the core. And again, as with Paul last week... Peter is trying to describe something that's indescribable. Human beings, we don't have the vocabulary for this. We don't have the insight as to what the end of the world as we know it will be like. So Peter resorts to the only options available to him. He, He uses metaphor. He uses apocalyptic language, if you like, to get his point across. The imagery that he uses is difficult. We shouldn't push it too far, but the message is crystal clear. When Jesus returns, all human belief and behavior will be laid bare before God. There will be no hiding place. Humanity will be tested and judged. Not playfully as on a reality TV show, but as in a fire. Just as Precious metals had their impurities blasted off them in a furnace. God is going to blast away the sin from the surface of his precious earth. When Christ comes, make no mistake, there will be judgment. Judgment for all. So, yes, what we believe matters, and how we behave matters. Because one day we'll be held to account for it. So we can't hide away. And Peter's readers can't just behave like the pagans do to avoid persecution. We can't just do what we like, ignoring God's instructions. Because one day, Jesus is coming. But let's be a little bit careful Yes, this knowledge of coming judgment should make us think very soberly about our lives. It should shock us. It should inspire us to change if there's something going on that we know we shouldn't be doing. But let's remember that as followers of God, this coming judgment is a good thing. It is a good thing. We know the pain of this world. We know the damage that sin and evil causes. We see it in the wars and the prejudice and the abuse on our news screens every week. Take the tragic murder of little Arthur that we've all read so much about this week, for example. It's only by judging and purging the sin from the world that God can return it to how he intended it to be as we're reminded in verse 13, it is through judgment that the new heavens and new earth will begin. That eternal sanctuary where we will live face to face in the peace and joy of the Lord. So we're to hold on to Jesus. We are to trust in his cross. Know that we are forgiven. And that through this coming judgment, our future will be with him. So Peter has condemned the lies of the false teachers. He's reminded his readers of the great Christian truth. Jesus is coming. He is coming to judge. But after that, the new heavens and new earth will begin. And it will be glorious. The question now turns back to where we began. Why the delay what is god waiting for why do we have to endure the torment of the present coronavirus included with seemingly no ending sight does god even care well let's read again the beautiful answer that peter gives to this in verses 8 and 9 Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What? wonderful words they are he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance first of all Peter says God just doesn't work to our time scale he doesn't work with our concept of days and months and years the day of Christ's return will happen in his time But most importantly, Paul says that God's time will be the perfect time. Peter invites his readers, after remembering God's word, to remember God's patience. This current delay that we're living through right now is not caused by God wavering up there or God struggling to achieve what he wants, but because he's being patient. Patience wasn't seen as a virtue in the ancient world any more than it is now. They wanted everything instantly too. But Peter invites them to see that patience is a real virtue as far as God is concerned because his patience is an act of love and grace. God has the power at any moment to return in Christ and wrap things up. He could have done it centuries ago. If he'd wanted to. And let's be honest, it would have saved him a whole lot of trouble. He wouldn't have had to suffer with his people as they were torn apart by Roman lions. He wouldn't have had to suffer with the Jews in the concentration camps or the Japanese in the cancer wards of Hiroshima. He wouldn't have to dwell with the refugees freezing every night at the moment. If he'd ended it all years ago, he wouldn't have had to suffer all this torment. This weeping with his people, his spirit groaning from inside of them, as it says in Romans 8. But God was prepared to forbear the suffering of the world. He was prepared to put himself through all of this. Not just the pain of an individual life, but the pain of all his people across all the centuries. Why? Because he's waiting for people like us. As an act of incredible love and grace, he is making space for even the foulest people to repent and come to him. God is waiting for our benefit, not his. Every day he waits. It costs him. But he waits for us. God is waiting for the very last person who is to believe to believe. And then he will come right away. So instead of being angry like I was as a child waiting for the bus, we should be immensely grateful for God's patience. Verse 15 says it beautifully and clearly bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation so let's not misunderstand things in the struggle of living through a pandemic we are waiting because God is kind to get angry with him tell him to hurry up is selfish. God is not wavering or showing a lack of intention. He is giving the fullest space possible for as many people as possible to come to believe in him. And truly, when the Lord Jesus returns, there'll be nobody who has the excuse that they didn't have enough time to make up their minds. So having heard then this wonderfully, wonderfully good news, let's briefly note how Peter finishes. Earlier we saw the disastrous effect that the false teaching was having on the church's behaviour. Remove the second coming from your faith and you can behave how you like. But now that Peter's reminded them of God's word, he's reminded them about God's patience, he closes by reminding them on how they are to behave. They're not just to sit idly around, waiting for Jesus to come. There is much to do. They have a calling to live out. So in short summation, Peter urges his readers to scrub up, weigh up, and grow up. That to scrub up. In verse 11, Peter calls them to go back to living a holy, godly, spotless life. In verse 15, he says, Make every effort to be found spotless. Imagine our lives like the glass of a lamp. Scrub up the lamp, and the light shines out more brightly. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are to shine like a light into the world. We are to be different to those around us, even if we're persecuted for that difference. Because by living holy lives... We are showing people God. And then they will have the opportunity to hear about Jesus for themselves. The second thing Peter says is that believers are to weigh up, to weigh up all the teaching that they hear. Verse 17 says they're to be on their guard against lawless people and false teachers who try to suck them off course. There's a lot of rubbish out there about the second coming of Jesus, let me tell you. We have to weigh up what we hear. And if we see that we're going down in a wrong direction, we need to get ourselves back on track by holding ourselves to God's word. And finally, we are to grow up. Verse 18 encourages all believers to keep growing in grace. Go deeper in your knowledge of Jesus. As Christians, we've always got more to learn. And the more we learn about Jesus, the more we love him, the more we love him, the more we live for him in the world. And again, the result of this is God's light shining brighter out into the world. So we're to scrub up our lives, we're to weigh up the teaching that we hear, and we're to grow up in Christ. As God is waiting For the very last person to believe, the quicker people come to faith, the sooner that day will be. So with that in mind, let's go back to the question we began with. How are we at waiting?